Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. On today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Ohao Chen. Ohao started his degree in mathematics and applied mathematics in China, then shifted his attention to design instructions to teach and learn mathematics from the perspective of cognitive load theory. He conducts his research by using randomized controlled trials in the real classroom setting. Now, before joining the Centre of Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough, Ohau was working as a lecturer and research scientist at the National Institute of Education, Nyang Technological University, Singapore, after the completion of his postdoctoral training at Southern Cross University, Australia. In this conversation, we centred it around one of the most popular topics on this show over the years, and that is, of course, cognitive load theory. We discussed the key takeaways from cognitive load theory, the role of productive failure, and just what just <laughs> what does John Sweller make of all the increased attention on his theory in recent years? This is a cracker. And I'll tell you what, as an extra twist, wait till you hear about who's co-authoring a paper concerned with cognitive load theory that Ohau announces in a bit of a world exclusive later on in the episode. Anyway, I'll be back at the end with a few things that I've been thinking about since speaking to Ohau how, but for now, let's get cracking. 
Okay, oh how. So we begin the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Oh, I think my favorite number is zero. Uh, nice, how come? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I have two reasons. Firstly, if we do multiplication with zero, everything will be zero. So I think zero is very powerful in multiplication. And uh, secondly, I think zero can decide the value of a number. For example, if you put zero on the right of a number, we can create a very, very big value of the number. But if we put the zero on the left of the number, the number will be, can be very, very small. So I think that zero is a very powerful number in the math. That's a lovely, lovely answer. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. Zero can really confuse students. You get classic things like five multiplied by zero is five and so on. But okay. yeah, once, once students really start to learn the power of zero, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, really good choice. I like that one. Um, well, question number two then. What was your favorite topic in maths as a student? Uh, I would say algebra because I studied mathematics in uh, undergraduate degree. And uh, once I started the higher algebra, I feel algebra is quite easy to handle compared to study mathematical analysis. Uh, especially if you study, if you uh, need to approve the limitation, it's very tough in mathematical analysis. But if you play with metrics, actually it's very fun. And also you can very multiply and uh, play with the metrics very directly. So I choose algebra. Nice, nice. Yeah, not always students' number one choice, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of algebra as well. Um, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and a final speed dating question, oh, how? What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? Uh, actually, I haven't. Dis- I haven't thought about not do any other job uh, rather than education because I have determined in my childhood to be a teacher. So I think. I will definitely do education-related jobs rather than other jobs. So I will not do any other jobs. Wow, fantastic. A very, very happy man <laughs> when he's chosen career. That's what, yeah, that's because, what I like to hear. Yeah, because my, because my family actually, in my family, my grandpa and my father are both teachers. So probably that is like an heritage. I, I also want to be a teacher, very sure <laughs> oh that's great that's superb well that sets us up nicely then for you for, for you to talk us through your career to date so just give us a bit of an overview of how of where it all started for you and how you got to where you are today okay um so so my career actually i so of course i studied my degree the under undergraduate degree in mathematics so so a lot of people think i Actually, I'm a mathematician uh, rather than educationer, educator. But um, but I changed my mind to do a master in math education. So I, I focus more on how to design instructions to teach mathematics. Uh, and after my master's, I uh, went to Australia to pursue my PhD with Professor John Swaler in cognitive load theory. Uh, I I I was very lucky because I I, I could study with John Swaler and uh, and and I also think that is an opportunity for um, 
for my current position in UK. And、uh, after my PhD, I I also was working as a postdoc in Southern Cross University. And、uh, in Southern Cross Southern Cross University, I I was working with Professor Jeff Woodcourt. We apply cognitive load theory to design a MOOC. Um, and after my postdoc, I I got a position in National Institute of Education, Singapore. And in Singapore, I also was working closely with、uh, math education colleagues there. And、uh, I was very surprised about the、um, teaching and the math system in Singapore. Really, really fantastic. And、uh, I learned a lot from my Singapore Singapore colleagues. Uh, and now, of course, in from February this year, I moved from Singapore to Loughborough.、Uh, I was a little bit actually nervous because I know、uh, in UK this cognitive load theory is a very hot topic, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I I really I really moved to UK and I, I, to do the cognitive load theory, and probably I I really pushed myself in in the center of the store. Um, but I, but I'm very happy to, to, to carry on and to take challenges from others and to inform teachers how could we apply cognitive load theory in a real classroom settings. Wow, fantastic! Well, I, I must admit, Oha, whenever、uh, Colin Foster sent me through all the the people's bios and and what their chosen areas of research, I was particularly excited to read yours because cognitive load theories.、Uh, um, you're absolutely right; it's a hot topic. I like that you're kind of in in the heart of the storm, and we we've talked about it a lot on on this program, both positive and negative, both its limitations and it, and its applications. So I'm really looking forward to to diving into this with you.、Uh, just before we go any further, though.、Um, I always like to ask my guests to pick out a favorite failure. So this could be a moment from any any aspect of your professional life or your research career. But I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan, and crucially, what you learned from the experience. Yeah, I, I actually I I very like the the term the favorite failure because、uh, I'm not whether I, I don't know whether you are familiar uh or, or not because currently. Uh, we have a very interesting learning framework called productive failure. So I think yes, I've <laughs> come across it. Yes, yes, I like it. Yes, I think、uh, I definitely learn from failure as well.、Um, so I think one of the failures I I have met is maybe during during I was doing my postdoc in Australia.、Uh, at that time, during that time, I actually I got an interview with University of Nottingham. And uh, uh, but I didn't get, but I didn't get that offer. But uh, um, because、uh, at that time I was too um less knowledgeable in education, especially the learning theories. Um, but I was very lucky to talk with Professor Sharon Unsworth because she really gave me a lot of guidance and、uh, also some research in learning and theories and how to be a real. Learning scientist.、Um, so I think after that interview, that、uh, that that failed interview, I I, I gradually to、um, learn a lot about、um, like so such as how how to how to train teachers and、uh, how 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 if we work in the school of education, how could we、uh, learn from teachers and also how could we translate research to the school teachers. 
and also how could we um uh, like, like co cooperate with school teachers to uh, to translate our uh, learning theories into the real classrooms fantastic that that's it's, it's a really nice way of putting that it's it's something one of the main reasons i wanted to do this this 10 part mini series was to take some of the most exciting research that's going on in there and, and then sh firstly make teachers aware of it but then think what does this actually mean for their for their lessons day-to-day -day working working with students so that's that's a fantastic choice and um, so that sets us up sets us up perfectly their know-how to talk about your chosen area of research so so what are we going to be discussing today uh, of course, we are going to talk about cognitive load theory. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'd be very disappointed if we weren't. So um, can I just get a bit of background from you? Um, you, you say, obviously, that you, you did uh, some your PhD with, with John Sweller. Um, what first attracted you to cognitive load theory? How, when, did, when were you first made aware of it? Uh, I think I, 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 I want to thank my... Um, supervisor during my master degree because my my master degree supervisor he is doing uh, working memory and math education and uh, at that time actually he was using work examples from John Swiller and uh, and also at that time I was also looking for a PhD uh, and my master supervisor told me oh probably we can contact with John Swiller and uh, we are and we are using work examples, and we and we found using work examples is very efficient for learning, and uh, and so I I try I try my um, best to send email to contact with John Swiller and also um, Professor Slava Kaluga, uh, and they are very they were very happy to accept me as PhD, and um, and so that's why I I went to Australia and work with John Swiller. Wow, f fantastic! And I, I, yeah, I, I definitely. Well, I have so many questions for you here. Okay, here sure. But I think a, a good place to start will be just just for, to, to talk to us about some specific areas of research that that you were directly involved in, uh, perhaps as part of your PhD or, or what you've done since. So, just, just talk us through some of the things that you you researched specifically. Uh, okay, so um, so I, I I got started doing research in math education actually in my master degree and uh, in my master degree actually i designed an an intelligence intelligent game we call a pentomino and uh, i designed that those game to train students spatial ability because the pentomino actually is a 3d tetris so i i Ask students to play with a pentomino maybe seven, several weeks, and then we test their uh, spatial ability whether the, the spatial ability increased or no improvement, and we found students got great improvement by playing the pentomino. And um, and after my master degree, I because my master degree was done under department of mathematics, so um, a lot of Actually, it's very math. But my PhD was done under the School of Education at University of New South Wales. So everything is more general education. But I but I still uh, use but I still use math as a material to uh, test uh, different types of learning effects or instructional effects. So so my PhD focuses on 
uh, uh, work example effect and generation effect. So the work example, the work example effect, of course, when we suggest for novices, teachers should um, show novices how to solve the problems. But um, generation effect actually suggests the teachers should encourage students to generate the answers by themselves. So, and the two effects actually um, have been investigated for over 30 years. But before my PhD, no one um, actually investigate, investigate the two effects together. But, um, but my supervisor um, told me probably we, we could use the element interac interactivity concept from cognitive load theory to, uh, to combine the two effects or to compare the two effects together. So we um, differentiate, differentiated the learning materials by low element interactivity and high element interactivity to test the work example effect and the generation effect. And can I just ask you at, the, at this stage, oh, yeah. because it, it, again, it, it's fascinating this. Uh, you, as you say, the worked example effect and, and the generation effect almost seem like opposites, don't they? They almost seem like they're saying the opposite thing. Worked example effect suggests that teachers should be modeling, showing students what to do. Generation effect suggests that students completing things themselves might be a, a better way for long-term learning. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this this um, element interactivity and um, may, may be the key to this. Could you just explain as simply as you can what, what that means? Because it, it's, it's often a concept that I, I find that people get confused with, myself included, and, and can be potentially confusing. So what would be an example of something that's got high element interactivity and, and versus low? Okay, so uh, I think I think so. Uh, element interactivity actually is a concept we use in COT to um, differentiate uh, the nature of learning materials. For example, if we ask students to, to memorize English words, uh, for example, apple and uh, dog, um, this type of material belongs to low element interactivity because students could memorize the two English words, the English words indi individually and separately. So actually, we can we can memorize apple without refer referring to dog, uh, and also they can memorize dog without referring to apple. But if we ask them to solve an equation, for example, three x plus five equals eight, and the student is in order to solve this this equation, students have the students have to understand the each math symbol in this equation, but the student couldn't understand each symbol individually. We have to understand 3x plus 5 equals 8, the six symbols simultaneously. So which means the six symbols in this equation are actually interconnected. We couldn't separate them. Otherwise, we couldn't understand this equation. So this type of material belongs to high element interactivity. So there are, there are more elements in this equation are interacted. I see. Now, is, is there an example of anything in maths that's got a low element interactivity, or is, is the whole of maths high? Um, from my understanding and from um, our research in cognitive load theory, we, we think the math facts or the math concept actually belongs to low element interactivity. 
um, and also maybe some bad formulae, um, the formulas uh, are all, also belong to low element, element interactivity um, because that, uh, those error taps those those air those errors tap on math concept, um, but once we are going to involve some math procedures, which definitely belong to high element interactivity materials. I see, I see. So possibly some facts yeah. on their own could be isolated, could be low, low um, element interactivity. That's right. But as soon as we start combining procedures and methods. Um, can I also ask just, and I, again, I'm aware I've interrupted you, mm. but I've, I've got, as I say, I have so many questions here. Um, is it, would it be right to say that as students get more knowledgeable, something that was potentially high element interactivity becomes less so, becomes low, or is it... Is, is it just fixed? Is, is element interactivity something that's, that's constant regardless of the knowledge of the, the student, if that makes sense? Uh, that's a very good question, actually, because uh, your question um, taps on the expertise reversal effect. Um, the element interactivity is closely relevant to learners' expertise. So, for example, um, solving the equation 3x plus 5 equals 8 for novices or for the or for the less knowledgeable learners, this question can be very high in element interactivity. But um, for someone who already know how to solve this equation, the element interactivity actually um, is reduced to a very low element interactivity because we because the, the learners already have the schemas in the long term memory, so they could retrieve the schema. As one element, one as one element to solve this equation. So, so therefore, um, uh, you have more knowledge in this area. The the materials in this domain will become less, low and low, lower and lower element interactivity. I see. And the last question, I promise, before I let you <laughs> to tell me about your research. And um, the other thing I get confused about with, yeah. with cognitive load theory is is the relationship between element interactivity and an intrinsic load, or just just any kind of load. And um, are, are they essentially the same thing? If 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 a, an equation has got a high element interactivity, does that mean it's got a high intrinsic load? And if it's low element interactivity, it's got a low intrinsic load are they essentially the same thing or is, is there some difference going on there uh i would say uh the uh, the intrinsic load is is uh, definitely depends on the levels of element interactivity because element interactivity um reflects the nature of learning materials mm. so which means if the if this material has very high level of element interactivity, which means these materials will impose very high intrinsic load on working memory. Um, and also if this material belongs to low element interactivity, which will impose very low intrinsic load on working memory. I see. But is, is there something extra in intrinsic load, kind of above and beyond element interactivity? Are, are, are they separate concepts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for the intrinsic load, and intrinsic load deals with the nature of learning materials, and extraneous mm. load deals with teacher's instruction. Mm. And uh, usually, usually the intrinsic load is fixed once the materials are fixed. 
but for the an extra near slot that could be alternated based on how we design the learning material, uh, how we design the instructions. I see. And I think I can sense already we're going to return to extraneous load as we, continue, <laughs> as we go through, because that's one of my favorite things to talk about as yeah. well. But anyway, Ohal, let, let me uh, get you back on track to your okay. uh, your research after I've derailed us there. So you were telling us about how you were looking at the worked example effect and the generation effect and how element interactivity may be maybe the key to kind of reconciling the two. So yeah. Yeah, keep talking to us about that, if that's okay. Yeah, so... Uh, so my PhD, uh, the first experiment in my, I, I, I would say the first three experiments for my PhD research, we we use the geometry problems. So so we designed, we and selected some um, math formula, uh, some math formulas um, from primary schools. For example, um, the area of a rectangle and the area of a circle. So we chose a lot of uh, those uh, formulas as low element inter interactivity materials. And uh, we also um, asked our students to design some um, materials such as to ask students to calculate the area of a compound shapes. Uh, and we uh, designed those kind of materials as high in element interactivity. So we and so we separate students into different groups, and we asked um, one group students to to generate uh, the uh, the formulas. For example, uh, what is the area for rectangle? And another group student, we present all of the formulas to to study. Um, and can I can I just check as well, oh, how at this yeah. point, it's students prior knowledge coming into this that they hadn't encountered these formulas before? Is is that right? Uh, oh yeah, that's right. So um, so before we random randomize um, participants into two groups, we present all of the formulas to students to to have a look. Ah, so they've had they've had a look at these formulas first, but they've they've not been they haven't been taught them. Is, is that yeah, right? yeah yeah that's right. I see, and then they're in two groups. One group uh, is is shown the formulas. Is what via worked examples, or just kind of told told what they are? What, what, what's what's happening across these two groups um, specifically? Okay, uh, the one group we we just present on uh, the uh, formulas, such as uh, the area of re rectangle equals to the length multiplied by the uh, the width, the width or the width, uh, and. Uh, uh, and another group, we ask them to generate what is the area of a rectangle. So they need to write down the the formula by themselves. I see. So so no no proof or anything like that. It's no, just, no, no instead proof. of being told it, it's just like a fill in the gaps. What is what is the area of a rectangle, and they have to write down the formula for it. Is yes, right? yes. Yeah, so we nice. I, so actually we were testing them uh, the math concept. That that is taps on the math concept or the math facts. Got it. But there's no kind of formal teaching going on at, at any stage here in, in this no, 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 no. I see. Right. I've got it. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I've got my head around this. Oh, how this is good. So good so far. I'm, I'm, I'm following. <laughs> what, happens, what, what happens next? And, uh, and so, so this type of, so this type of, um, uh, experiment is going to test the generation effect because mm. we think generation effect works with low element interactive materials. Yes. Yes. 
and so uh, and then we and after learning all the materials, we 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 randomized students again, and to another two groups. Uh, one is work example group, another one is problem solving group, and uh, for those two groups, the students need to calculate the error of a compound shape. So they need to apply the formulas they learned before to calculate the compound shape. For example, uh, they need to um, calculate the apply the formula of error of rectangle and also the error of a um, of a trapezoid, and then you need to add them together to mm. to get the error of this compound shape. So, so we think this kind of material belongs to high elementary activity, and also, and that taps on work to test the work example effect. Yes, yes, and okay. So it's higher element interactivity because the you, you can't just do these things in isolation. Yeah, There's that's right. Between them, and it and it's more complex. I see. Okay, and is it a similar similar experiment here? Oh, how are you? Um, is it is it the same setup that one group of students is just presented with it uh, with 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 the the formula, and one group is asked to generate it, or is is something different going on in in this setup? Uh, actually, we we. We use the and uh, the same the same the same students, but the the firstly at the first stage they they just learn the formula formulas, and as at the second stage they uh, apply the formulas to calculate the error of compound shape, and uh, and just just the first one just for the first one we uh, use the use uh, low element interactive material for. Generation effect, but for the phase two, uh, we use the uh, high element interactivity material for work example effect. I see. And and what what happened? Oh, what was what were the results? Okay, <laughs> the, <laughs> the big the big drama. Go on. What, what happened? Yeah, the, the results shows um, for generation effect, we the generation effect favors to low and simple materials. Um, but for work example effect, and that favors to high element interactivity materials, which means the complex materials. I see. Now I've I've, I've got a number of questions here on. This. Okay. So my, my, <laughs> my first is I'll tell you one thing, and I'm glad you're on here, Ohau, because you, you can help me solve all my problems that I've been confused with 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 cognitive load theory. So, I'm happy to. So, <laughs> so one thing is with the generation effect. Um, is that different to the testing effect or the retrieval effect? So, so the notion that if you just quiz students every time they retrieve something from from long term memory to use, if we use Bjork's analogy, that the retrieval strength and storage strength of that memory increases. So, it's a really good idea to to do to do things like low stakes quizzes where we keep keep asking students to to retrieve knowledge over long periods uh, over different intervals over time because it strengthens the memory is that the, is that the same as the generation effect or is, is something different going on there um the generation effect and uh, testing effect the two effects belong to desirable difficulty framework mm. um but the design is different so design for the two effects are different so for testing effect we um, we have two stages. The first stage, we um, present materials to to students to learn the materials at the first stage, and the second stage, and um, testing effect is we we don't present the materials 
materials again, but we ask students to um, to test students what they have learned from the materials presented before. So this the so the whole design is for testing effect, but generation effect, and um, the generation effect at the design is with only one phase. So we present students, um, the materials, and uh, probably we give some. They have some cue. Probably program students a queue, and then they mm. could generate the answer. For example, the very classic design for generation effect is they give the student to generate the opposite meaning of the word. For example, I give you hot, you need to generate code as the opposite meaning. So this is a very classic design for generation effect. But the testing effect usually we have two faces. I see. Um, so. So what what would it look? I'm always interested practically what what this would look like. What 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 would this look like in mathematics? Because I, I can see how there'd be a bit of of a crossover here. You can imagine students have just been taught. Let's use your example, area of a rectangle. Mm. Um, say they've been taught that in class, and then the following week it appears on a homework, and the question might, might be something like, "What is the area of a rectangle?" Mm. Now that's a kind of a bit of both, isn't it? Because it's it's asking students to generate something that they've mm. been taught previously, but it's also a test of retrieval. Yeah. Can you remember what it is? So it's, it's, it almost feels like a bit of a grey area to me when it's in the reality of the classroom, if that makes sense. Um, yes, I, I. If I understand your question correctly, um, for the for the formulas, um, probably we have some different different teaching style in different countries. Mm. Um, in Asia, in Asia, actually, we use a lot of examples in the classrooms. It's, um, no matter in China or in Singapore, um, the teacher always present work examples first, and then the students practice followed by work example. Mm. And in the UK, I because the pandemic, so I, I haven't got any chance to go to the classroom. But... Um, but I, I, I'm probably in UK. I'm, I, I assume probably in the UK or the Western countries, probably students use more, um, problem-based learning or the inquiry-based learning. Probably in the UK, that's just my, my, my guess. Probably you can give me some thoughts. Um, and for the, um, for the application, how to apply a generation effect in in the classroom, um, for for me, I, I haven't, I haven't done any translate the generation effect to the real classrooms but um, but for the work example effect um, we translate the work example effect to a MOOC um, to a MOOC before so and we try to um, test the, the the MOOC in real classroom and also we found the work example effect also exists when we um, when we use and the MOOCs in your real classroom. Can, can I just ask, oh, I, I always forget what MOOC stands for. I, I know there's, um, oh, yeah, yeah. there's, yeah, go on, what, what, what does it stand for? Oh, the MOOC is the uh, Massive Online Open Courses. That's it, that's it. So, so I'm very, okay, I'm very interested here then in the, in the practical applications mm. of, of the worked example effect. So if you can describe to me what it looked like on the MOOC. And then I've just got a couple of follow-up questions about it, about in classrooms. So so mm. how, how did you make the work to example effect work? Uh, okay, so so actually um, my my mentor in, in Southern Cross University, he um, he was also doing he's also doing math education and he got a very I think brilliant idea. 
So actually, we we firstly we break down uh the math skills. Uh, for example, you uh, for example you 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 need to calculate three um, bracket x plus five minus eight equals five. This equation. So in order to solve this equation, you need to acquire some very basic math skills. For example, firstly you need to know how to open a cross bracket. And then you need to know how to collect the like terms. And also you need to know how to calculate, how to do addition, multiplication of negative or positive numbers. So we, so, we, so firstly, we break down the complex math skills into very simple and individual math skills. Mm. And we design work example to uh, teach those simple and individual math skills first. And then at the final stage, we present uh, the complex materials so, so the student could apply all of the basic skills together to solve the final and the complex materials. I see. Now, now this, this may be a, a really silly question on my part, oh, so I, I apologize in advance for this, but well, what does this worked example actually look like? Is it is it a video of somebody do like a teacher like rolling it out on the board, like going through it step by step, or is it written materials that students study? It's all there and they read it line from line, or what does it actually look like? I think that's a very good question, and not not a stupid question. I love that. <laughs> uh, it's very good um, because um, because we 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 created a Moodle, and so we actually we ask uh, we ask another colleague uh, to. Um, to read the script we, we wrote, and the the script include included um each step how to solve a problem, and so so their colleague read out the script step by step, and also we create um slides, and and also the slides include some highlighting. For example, we we use arrows to to show the key po- key components of each step. So the student can can link the key key components in each step, and also they can um, hear the um, the instruction from our colleague. I see. Now, now th- th- this really interests me. This because um, I had a, a guest on the show um, probably last year now, Michael Pershing, who's a, a teacher from New York City, mm. and he's um, he's a he's a great follower of, of cognitive load theory okay. and a big fan of Sweller. But he's also he, he he also likes to take it and then find his own way to make it work and so on. And we it was really interesting. We we both read the same research in terms of the worked example effect, but yeah. we both come away with different applications from it. So the way I do worked examples in my classroom mm. is I will, um, I'll split the board into either two columns or three columns. I'll have a your turn column on the left and a, sorry, I'll have a worked example column on the left and a your turn column on the right. And I'll do the worked example on the left. And then my students will then have a go at a related example on the right. But crucially, I'll go through it step by step. So I will write one line on the board and then my students will have time to pause and think, and I may discuss it, and then I'll do another line and so on. So I, I'll, I'll roll out the worked example line by line. Whereas what Michael Pershing did, and he'd re- read the exact same, um, same research as I had, he presents the worked example as a complete solution first, 
So the students can see it from start to finish. And then he goes through it line by line. They studied line by line. But crucially, they can see the full picture initially, if that makes sense. Now, do you have a do you have any views over either which is preferable or which fits in more with your your understanding of cognitive load theory and the worked example effect? Um, I think I think the, the approach you you are using um involve two cognitive load effects. The first one, work example effect for sure. Another effect called the isolated isolated element interactivity. Uh, element isolation effect. So because you you show students one step and then discuss this step, actually you isolate these steps and then you um, present students a whole picture of the work example. Um, but for for my for Michael, I think he he probably he uses just a very traditional work examples, so which present the whole picture of uh, the work example of the all of the solutions to the students, and then the students may follow uh, the solutions to solve a similar problem. Yes, I think so. So, so both can both can work. Both both can tap into this worked example. Effect. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. it's I guess it's teacher preference and also knowledge of your students what works best. Would would that be right? Yeah, I think I think your approach probably, um, in some ways, better um, for novices or for uh, less knowledgeable learners because you actually isolate you isolate the complex solutions uh, into individual steps individual steps and uh, so students can perceive um, um few information initially initially and then gradually gradually you build on um, and the whole picture to the students i see i see um I, again I've, I've lots more questions for you oh how but mm. i just want to throw it back to you was was there anything else from that worked example and generation effect research that you wanted to to, to talk about um i think uh, I think the work example and generation effects. Um, of course, uh, we suggest uh, using work example, using work examples to teach a math procedure, to teach procedural knowledge that is very efficient and uh, works. Uh, for generation effect, I think we we definitely use the generation effect to to teach very simple and uh, easy. Um, material such as math concepts or the math facts. So, so from here you can see actually cognitive load theory uh, really really focus on procedural knowledge rather than conceptual knowledge. Um, yeah. So, so this is the I think the key ideas. Yeah, this is this really interesting. This because um, I, I mean, as you mentioned yourself, um, it's it's very popular at the moment in, in the UK cognitive load theory, but also but also controversial. Mm. Now, I can only speak as, as as a maths teacher, but I think a lot of the controversy comes with that this notion of, of conceptual knowledge that that cognitive load theory is great potentially. Well, using using things like worked example effect and then avoiding split attention effect and so mm. on are great for focusing on the the, the basics to, to, to get students to understand how to follow a method or procedure but then when we want students to do more complex things like actually understand why they're doing something and, and see how it links in with other concepts and, mm. and potentially solve complicated problems um 
is that where we kind of abandon cognitive load theory and, and go back to kind of either problem-based learning and so on? Or, do, or does cognitive load theory have have useful things to say about how we help students acquire that conceptual knowledge? Uh, okay, so so firstly, I want to I want to tell you a story. Um, I I because um, because Anne Watson and uh, Mike Ollerton, we we actually wrote a paper to. Um, mathematics teaching, and that paper we deal with. We talk about um, the cognitive load theory and uh, um, problem-based learning. So I think that paper will come out maybe in December. And because oh, wow. um, I'm I'm, re- I'm fascinated already because th- they were two people who were were in my mind as as people who were potentially skeptical or critical of of the of over relying on the <laughs> cognitive load theory. So that's fascinating that you've teamed up. Yeah, go on, tell tell me the story. Yeah, so so um, L. Watson told me in UK the government um, encourages the cognitive load theory, but they use very they use very simplified version. Cognitive load theory to teachers. Um, I would say, firstly, I think for the British for British teachers, they need to they need to understand um, the cognitive load theory. Actually, we we use we use cognitive load theory to uh, reduce extraneous load rather than the general load. So, which means we in cognitive load theory we have types of load. But the teachers may not very clear about which type of load they are really managing with. Um, but but of course, um, back to your back, if we back to your question for the conceptual understanding, in 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 cognitive load theory, the conceptual understanding actually belongs to a low element inter- interactive interactive material, which means the Conceptual conceptual materials belongs very simple material. Um, generally speaking, CLT doesn't study on doesn't work on conceptual understanding uh, this this kind of stuff. But um, we think, firstly, if we um, if students have a very good understanding about the procedural knowledge, the procedural knowledge will support the conceptual understanding. Although we didn't. Although the CLT doesn't um, tap on conceptual understanding directly, but we um, work on procedural knowledge in order to support the conceptual understanding. And secondly, um, Slava and I published a paper last year. We uh, we actually found there are types of conceptual conceptual knowledge in mathematics. And so I think there there are maybe six types of conceptual knowledge, and uh, the, this kind of category categorization published by Ali Bali and Karuk, um, and we found maybe some types of conceptual knowledge in mathematics belong belongs to complex ones. So we so now we think uh, maybe some conceptual knowledge also very complex rather than all of the conceptual knowledge. Uh, is easy. Um, for example, um, we think uh, the concept, the concept, the conceptual knowledge underlying procedure. Um, this type of conceptual knowledge belongs to very complex material because we uh, need to involve procedure knowledge. Um, but but if the concept knowledge only relates to facts and um, 
very simple math facts. Those conceptual knowledge actually belong to very simple materials, and uh, Coco-Coimelow theory cannot work on that. This is this is fascinating. This oh, so just just I just want to comment on a couple of things that that you've said there. So the first the, the thing you said right at the start, I thought was was really interesting. This this misconception that that cognitive load theory is about making things easier for students and reducing the load. Whereas yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's not at all. And I remember for me, Paul Kirshner mm. summed this up really nicely. I heard him speak at uh, one of the research ed things, and he said that it's. If you want to really simplify it, cognitive load theory is about trying to reduce the extraneous yeah. load so that students have got more capacity to think about the things that are going to lead to learning. So you, you free up space, you free up attention by reducing the things that don't matter so that students can dedicate more attention to the, the big ideas, the, the, the things that are going to really contribute to learning. So I really like, I really like that as a, as a way of thinking about it. One of the aims of instruction should be to try and reduce extraneous loads. Right. And, um, yeah, um, I th- we'll return to that um, shortly. The, the other thing, though, that struck me, again, I'm, fa- I'm fascinated, Ohau, about you, you sitting down with Anne Watson and Mike Ollerton to, to discuss this, because, again, my, uh, I, I know Anne fairly well. And I know that um, certainly it almost kind of to, to really simplify things down. And I again, I don't know if this is this is quite as I don't know if this is fair to simplify it like this. But to say to to almost kind of visual, visualize the the teaching of mathematics as we kind of teach the teach the procedures using worked examples and so on. Mm. And then once students have acquired a certain amount of knowledge. Um, of those procedures, they are then can then start to develop the conceptual understanding. That that kind of that that really makes sense to me. That's for for, for a lot of teaching. I think math teaching that that's that's the way I like to visualize it. But that almost would seem to go against what kind of Anne and, and Mike would think. So it is is that is is it as simple as that? Oh, how or rather, or is there a way that we can make teaching work where we we develop the concepts alongside the procedures and so on? What what's what's your view? Um, I think firstly, um, firstly, I think for the teachers in UK, um, the I I I know I know the 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 government version of Coriolano theory is very simplified. So the uh, as teacher just to simplify everything to teach. Mm. Um, but as I mentioned before, um, the COT actually is going to reduce extraneous load rather than intrinsic load. Yes. Because the intrinsic load actually is fixed, um, because, um, and and also CLT focus on com- complex materials. Like as you mentioned before, we reduce the extraneous load in order to free more working memory resources to um to learn the complex materials, like to to contribute to the intrinsic load or the German load. Mm. Um, so I think the teachers probably have have some misunderstanding about the simplify everything. So, so they think, I, okay, I'm going to simplify the materials rather than my instruction. Yes. And uh, this is actually the misunderstanding. So, so that's why, uh, like my colleague, David, David Hugh told me a lot of teachers to teach very, very simple stuff in mathematics. And the math, math, educations, math, math educators are very angry. So we shouldn't teach simple stuff to students. We need to have some challenges. We need to teach some complex materials to our students. But I told, I, I told David and also probably the te- all the teachers here in the UK, we are not going to simplify materials. We're going to simply, we're going to simplify or we are going to change the instruction. So 
So I think we need to really emphasize um, we are going to reduce the extraneous load rather than intrinsic load. Um, and also, I think um, I think because cognitive load theory um, focuses on procedural knowledge, and uh, as we know in math education, a lot of research has has already indicated that the procedural knowledge and um, conceptual knowledge actually the they actually mutually help each other. So mm-hmm. so you you have you have good conceptual understanding. You probably have very good con- procedural knowledge. And in turn, you have a very good um, procedural knowledge and which will support your conceptual understanding. Just I think COT probably uh, works on complex complex materials and like, like procedural knowledge. So we so we use cognitive load theory to uh, facilitate procedural knowledge learning, and then that will support your under conceptual understanding. Um, but if you want to know the learning theory focus on conceptual understanding. I think the teachers may interest in product failure because product failure really focus on math concepts. So the um, so Manu Kapo used the product failure to teach math concepts, um, but the COT doesn't do that. COT only focus on procedural knowledge, and we doesn't focus on pro- um, concepts, conceptual knowledge. But product failure focus on um, conceptual knowledge. So the product failure probably can give teachers some thoughts about how to teach concepts. Oh, this is interesting, right? Well, you, you you've opened a can of worms, zero house. I've, I've I've two things I want to want to ask you here. I yeah. definitely want to come to a bit of a little bit of productive failure. But let, let me just um let me just go back to this this notion of extraneous load because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you here. And whenever I'm lucky enough to speak to teachers about cognitive load theory or, or just just have discussions, mm-hmm. this seems to be. We, we mentioned before cognitive load theories is potentially controversial, but I don't think it's controversial to say that we should try to reduce this extra, whether we call it extraneous load or whether we call it distractions or things that make information harder to process. It seems really logical that that should be something that we aim to do with our instruction. And as you, as you say, that then frees up working memory resources to think harder about the material itself. Mm-hmm. So can we just speak practically, Ohau? Yeah. And knowing what you know, knowing all the research that you've done um, into cognitive load theory, what are some of the really practical things teachers can do to, to reduce that extraneous load? Okay, so um, so far, because um, generally speaking, cognitive load theories and instructional theories. So our aim is going to improve the instruction and also generate innovative instructions to teachers. So I think that each the each cognitive load effect could be applied uh, in the classroom. The, of course, the very classic one is the work example effect. So. So f- when we teach novices procedure knowledge, we should present uh, novices um, work example problem solving pairs. So we so which means we show novices a work example first, and then to uh, and then ask students to solve a very similar problems by using uh, that work example. And also, um, as you mentioned, this split attention effect. I know this this effect is very um is where is a well known in UK now, uh, and uh, so for example we are going to teach some geometry problem, uh, in the traditional textbook, uh, we actually separate the 
geometry and uh, the geometry shape um, from the solutions. But in COT, actually, we suggest we need to integrate the solution onto the geometry shape. So and why? Because if we separate the geometry shape and the solution, the students need to search the two resources information. Uh, that, that will consume the working memory resources. But if we integrate the two resources, the students don't need to search the information so they can learn the two resources information directly. Um, so I think this is the two effects. Um, and also another effect I think you are actually you are using now because the uh, element isolation, isolate, isolated element inter effect. I think you are using that because you show students um, one step of work example and then another step of work example. So for the traditional work example, we we actually show, we actually show students the whole solutions, all of the solutions of work example. Um, but sometimes that may that may cause that may cause high intrinsic load or the extraneous load. So so we could actually separate um, the work example step by step. So we show students one step of work example and then another step of work example. And then we show the whole picture of the work example. So this is called the isolated element, uh, element effect. Um, so another effect, um, I think the we have also the alternation of work example effect is called the go-free effect. Um, the go-free effect um, is also it suggests actually we we are not going to set a specific goal um, to solve a problem. Uh, for example, we uh, we show students a triangle, and uh, we give maybe one of the, the 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 value of the value of one of the angles, and we are not going to say please calculate uh, the angle of ABC, but we say please calculate as many angles and the value of angle as possible you can. So actually we eliminate the specific goal and to a goal-free problem that will also reduce the extraneous load. I see. Yeah, fantastic. Some re really, really practical things there. I love that, oh how. And um, just before we, we move on to reflections, if is it okay just to speak a little bit about productive failure? I yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> oh, fanta fantastic. Because, yeah, this, this is an interesting one, this. And, and as you say, if... If, if this is potentially a way to, if, if teachers have got in their head, right, if I, I want to teach some procedure, procedural knowledge, I want to teach a method, I'm going to use these ideas of this example problem pair and so mm. on. But now I need to really get my students thinking hard, solving problems, understanding that conceptual knowledge. What, what do I use now? And as you suggest, productive failure may, may, be, may be one avenue they could go down. Could you just give us a very brief brief overview? What, what, what is productive failure? What's, what's the theory, how? Okay, so so the product failure um was suggested by one of my colleagues in Singapore called Manu Kapoor. But Manu Kapoor now is working in ETH in Switzerland now. Um he owns Orange and he suggested this uh, framework because um he was he was thinking we the students could benefit something from the failures because um um, because he he was teaching engineering and mathematics in Singapore, 
I think many many years ago. Um, and then in and then in mathematics and in Singapore, um, they have called the PSLE the Primary School Leaving Exam. That is a exam similar to GC GSCE in UK, but that that exam happens after um, primary school. So so a lot of students actually um fail in that exam. Um so so Manu think probably we could design an an instruction to to help students to learn from the failure. Because failure doesn't doesn't um, scary. It's not scary. We should learn from the failure and uh, we and there are definitely some um some benefits from learning from failures. So he um so so the design for the product failure has two phases. The first phase is going to um, design some problems. The 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 problems for for students working group to generate as many as 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 ideas they could. Um, so definitely during that stage, because novice students or less knowledgeable students, they they will make a lot of mistakes during this stage. Mm. But that's fine. So after this stage, the teacher will um will collect all of the answers from the students, and the teacher will consolidate the the students' answers. Uh, like and and so I'm really sorry to interrupt. Her. Can you just give me an example? Because I I, I sh- when I read the productive um failure literature, I, I sometimes struggle to to picture what these kind of problems are. What what would it be like? A is it an unstructured kind of open ended? contextual problem or is it is it just a simple like solve an equation what, what kind of problems would these be that the students would be working on um i think the very classic problem manu use is is about the uh like the two team two football teams and uh, and they they have different scores for for each team so we could have two columns of uh, score for each team and they are and he asked them to and to to like to assess which team is more um stable for their future performance so we need to uh, know the so actually this problem taps on the uh, standard deviation and uh, to teach the concept of standard deviation so so the students may may, may don't know may not know the uh, formula of the standard deviation but they may uh, use some other ways to evaluate which team Will be more stable. Will have more stable performance um, in the future. Uh, I see. So students have they, they not necessarily been. They, they may know some simple averages and so on, but they they've not necessarily been taught standard deviation. So they yeah. So they're working through this problem. They've got got lots of different ideas, and then again, I apologies, I interrupted you. The teacher then brings it to the board and consolidates. So yeah. what happens then? So so at the second at the second phase, the teacher will. Uh, we'll tap on the students students answers and we'll consolidate uh, the student answers and uh, and actually this is a very very time consuming procedure because the teacher mm-hmm. may need a week or few weeks to consolidate the answers from students because um because when they design the um, math problems they they need to identify some critical features of this math concept so the teacher need to match whether this student's answer um, matches with one of the critical feature, or whether uh, the answer of the students doesn't match this critical feature. 
So, so the teacher needs to a lot of matches, and uh, and after the matching is done, the teacher will go to the classroom and to and to teach and the students about the concepts, and of course the teacher will show the students some critical features, and uh, then the student will. Uh, understand. Oh, in order to understand this math concept, I need to understand those critical features of this concept. Um, so this is a whole general design for the um, product failure. Um, but I would say, um, currently, one one of my colleagues in Singapore, he is um, practicing and also promoting the product failure in uh, Singapore schools, but. Um, because in Singapore, the traditional classroom teaching is also work example best. Mm. Um, a lot of teachers actually feel, uh, a lot of teachers actually think the product failure is very time consuming and not very efficient. Why we spend a lot of time to ask our students to struggle? And then um, if we use work example, that the students not, don't need to struggle and, uh, mm. and they can know the solution efficiently and directly. Um, so this is a kind of argument in Singapore schools, um, but um, from some from the papers published by Manu Kapoor, uh, we 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 think uh, the learning the productive failure framework uh, still still need some still need more research to validate uh, because it's a very new learning framework, and also we don't know whether this framework is stable and also could be generalized to other domains, um, but uh, the key point is the productive failure focus on conceptual understanding rather than procedural knowledge. I see. And is, is the theory, is, is Kapoor's hope that if taught using productive failure, the students develop stronger conceptual understanding? Is, is, is that the hope that that's what this approach leads to? That's right. The productive failure, the, 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 research, the, the, res, the results from productive failure always um, find a um, concept strong conceptual understanding compared to procedural knowledge. I see. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I've uh, when I was re researching for my first book, mm. I came across the productive failure research, and it was really it was really interesting. Oh how because mm. I just learned about cognitive load theory, and I thought that was the answer to everything. And then I read this thing about productive failure, and I thought, oh no, what? How, how does this fit into to kind of my framework of teaching and, and learning that I'm developing here. Mm. So I, I started doing some experiments with my students, just trying out productive failure. Mm. And I found a couple of things. And obviously this, this is, this isn't, uh, this is very small scale. This mm. wouldn't hold up as any kind of research study or anything, but we, um, in, in my school, um, in, in the UK, our students were taught in different sets. Yeah. So we had, you know, bottom set, middle set, uh, top set and, and so on. And there's, there's arguments for and against that. But what was really interesting is that with when I tried something like this with some of my top set students, they really seemed to enjoy it because they, they quite enjoyed the struggle. They, 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 they didn't mind mm. looking at something where they didn't necessarily know how to do it. They, they enjoyed arguing, coming up with different theories and so on. And it was it was it was an interesting lesson. It took a long time, as, as you said. Mm. I found it very challenging to teach and mm. it was quite frustrating for me because I thought, 
I know how to do this. I could tell you how to do this. And then we could save lots of time and we yeah. could get on to practicing and so on. But it was it was an interesting experience and the students seemed to enjoy it. Um, and they seemed to get a good, you know, a decent understanding of what was going on. When I tried it with my my lower set students, my my lower achieving students, mm. honestly, oh, how it was an absolute disaster. Like mm. they, they, they didn't know what was going on at all. And it I almost felt like I wasn't doing my job as a teacher because I thought I, I could really help and support you with this. Mm. And yet I'm watching you struggle. And I, my conclusion was that a lot of a lot of this comes down to students past experiences of, of mathematics and whether you label this as growth mindset or, or something different. But my, my higher achieving students had experienced success in the past so that it was almost for them that if they keep struggling, they'll get there eventually. Whereas my lower achieving students, because they've possibly quite a negative past experience with mathematics, this was just an incredibly frustrating and disheartening experience. Mm. So I just wonder whether students' prior experiences come into play in, de in determining how successful a productive failure approach is. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yes, I think... Uh... Uh, the paper published by Slava and me, we um, we did actually we did a systematic review on the um, we call the problem solving first approach. So we found that uh, we don't have so many research studies on prior knowledge with productive failure. So which means we we need more evidence to to know whether the students need to have more prior prior knowledge in order to um engage in the productive failure design. Um, but in CLT, in the CLT actually, um, in CLT definitely we uh, we tap we focus on the low prior knowledge students for the CLT because we could use the work examples to, mm. to teach the novices and the low level uh, low prior knowledge students. And also as I mentioned the expertise reversal effect once the learners as prior knowledge increases the work examples should be gradually changed to the problem solving mm. so which means actually in CLT we we doesn't we don't exclude problem-based learning just we need to know at which point we need to introduce problem-based learning so for example yeah. yes for, oh, sorry so you go so uh, yes that's why so 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 actually for at the very beginning, we need to use work examples. We need to have a lot of guidance. But gradually, when the an experts increases, actually problems problem based learning is more efficient than work example effect. Yeah, and I think we, we mentioned before mm. people's misunderstandings with, with cognitive load theory. And we mentioned one of them that cognitive load theory is all about making things simpler and we, we mm. explained that it's not. I think for me, the second biggest misunderstanding is that cognitive load theory is all about guided instruction all the way through. But as you say, it's not. The expertise yeah. reversal effect is in there that, that says, look, once you get to a certain Kind of competency or a certain amount of knowledge then it is far less efficient to use worked examples yeah. and that's when these less structured problems need to come into play and that's right. where i found cognitive load theory really useful for my teaching 
it's just helping me determine kind of an order of the the type of instructions and activities I give with my students. Because in the past, mm. I, I wouldn't think too much about the order. I try, here's a problem. Let's start this topic with a problem. Now let's do a worked example and so on. Whereas now I tend to use my problems a little bit later on in a given sequence of lessons than I would have done in the past. Mm. And my more guided instruction tends to be at the start. And that, that's been my biggest takeaway from, from cognitive load theory alongside trying to reduce that extraneous load, whether it be through worked examples or avoiding split attention or redundancy and so on. Um, is, is there anything else? Oh, because I'm, I'm uh, just conscious of the time here. I could speak to you all day about this and I don't think this will be, the, <laughs> hopefully this won't be the last time we talk. Is there anything else about your research into, into cognitive load theory that you want to make our listeners aware of before we start to wrap things up? Uh, I just want to maybe mention one point because um, sure. Uh, some maybe some teachers have um, think COT is a theory for everything, and we could mm-hmm. use COT to solve a lot every and um, teaching prob issues or teaching problems. Actually, uh, no, COT is not a theory for everything, and also um, the teacher think maybe COT doesn't focus on motivation factor or emotional factor. And um, I would say some of my some of my colleagues in I think in Netherlands, they are they are trying to link the COT uh, with motivation and uh, emotion and also self-regulation. So probably we have some more research come out in the future to say whether COT have a very clear connection with emotion, motivation, and self-regulation. Extra. Wow, that will be that will be fascinating to see how that, that fits mm. in there. Um, well, let me just ask you one reflection question, Ohab, okay. and I'm going to hand over to you for your, for your big three. So <laughs> um, my, my question is, um, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Uh, I, I think I think something important, probably the my uh, I, I chose to study my master from from math to math education because I. I was thinking probably after my undergraduate in mathematics, I will continue doing research in mathematics and pure mathematics. But I changed my mind to from um, from doing the um, research from pure math to math education. And um, because I think this change actually give, gives me an, another platform to, uh, to understand the mathematics. Um, because if I continue working on pure mathematics, probably I don't know uh, how how human memory or how how human brain works. But I only know the math problems. But now I'm doing math education research, and I gradually understand how the human cognition works and uh, what's uh, what's the difference between um, cognition, constructivism, and the behaviorism. So I think this kind of change gives me of a more broader understanding about the human learning and uh, also the math education. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's it. It's such a complex thing, um, education, and bringing all those elements into play is, is so important. That's a fantastic answer. Uh, well, let me hand over to you then, Ohau, for your, for your big three. So what three either websites, blog posts, books, or whatever you like, would you recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these in the show notes. So what are we going to go for? <laughs> okay, of course, the, the first book, I, I will recommend the Cognitive Low Theory book published by Swela. Ailes and uh, Kaluga. 
I think two thousand eleven. This is the first cognitive load theory book. Um, another book I want to recommend to to the to the UK teachers is uh, this book is a new book, but that is published by and uh, is written by and uh, Steve Garnett. He wrote a um a book. He wrote a CLT book to teachers. So that book should be very practical for teachers to learn how how to apply CLT in the classrooms. Um, I think the the blog post I will suggest um, Greg Ashman. Um, he's he po- he posts a lot of blogs and also he's a active Twitter. He's also very active in Twitter and so uh, I will suggest the blog from um, Greg Ashman. Fantastic. That's a, 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 an excellent suggestion. And just just final question for you, um, Ohab, just about all this. I'm always fascinated um, about John Sweller's um, take on on all this. And hopefully one day John will uh, come on come on the podcast. Huh. But obviously, you have, having worked with him um, quite closely, you, you'll know this far better than me. Well, what's his What's his take on all this? Because as far as my reading um, is concerned, he was talking about cognitive load theory, you know, 20, almost 30 years ago. So some of these, the earlier research on this from, from, from the late, from the late eighties. And yet, as you say, certainly in the UK, it's only really in the last few years that it's become a really hot topic and, and controversial and, and taken off. What's, what's his view on all that? Is, is he frustrated it's taken so long for it to reach prominence? Is he, is he a bit overwhelmed by just how kind of popular and up for discussion it is these days? What's John's take on all this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so I think okay, so I can I can tell you some story about about the how, how John Swiller thinks, um, <laughs> because um, I would say before before twenty before twenty seventeen, uh, before the before the Twitter published by uh, Dylan William, um, um, from and that's the, where he described, yeah, 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 no. the single most important yeah, thing yeah, yeah. teachers did. Oh, yeah, that's why right. I, I think I think before that Twitter and before 2017, COT uh, actually is not very uh popular, and also even in Australia, the government doesn't uh show a lot of potential to COT. Um, so 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 John Sweater thinks, um, he 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 is doing research for over. 20, 30 years on COT, but the government doesn't pay much attention, and also mm-hmm. the teachers doesn't like or doesn't doesn't also pay attention to the theory. So, so he he feel a little bit disappointed because he published a lot of papers on COT to to suggest how how to use memory and how to use working memory to uh, for learning and for teaching. But after twenty seventeen, that 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 Twitter by Dylan Williams. Um, that way to change the COT actually, uh, actually really changed COT. <laughs> and uh, after that Twitter, I think Australian government published, I think three government documents on cognitive load theory in Australia. <laughs> and uh, and they also invite John Sweater to give a lot of talk on, on cognitive load theory and uh, the, and they suddenly realized cognitive load theory is a very good learning theory to, to, to teach. Um, and also in UK, you can say the government also push a lot to the teachers to use cognitive load theory in UK. Uh, although we have a lot, still have a lot of problems uh, uh, about this theory, uh, to understand this theory. And uh, uh, but I think John Swiller now is very 
is very happy because he he knows people、uh, has recognized his theory and his his work.、Um, but but we think we we should be humble because we we know the learning theory should continue working and、uh, continue progressing. Uh, we couldn't say okay now. People recognize recognize the theories now. We so we couldn't. We we now we could do、uh, nothing more on the theory. We should continue progressing the theory, and especially we need to、um, inform teachers how to practice the theory in the classrooms. Absolutely, it's a, and as you said, that the fact that there's potential studies bringing motivation and emotions、yeah. in show that this is a theory that that's constantly evolving. Um, that was an absolutely fascinating discussion about how how I loved every minute of that. And as I say, I think we're we're scratching the surface here. There's, there's so much more to discuss, but for now, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Craig. So there you have it. There was my conversation with Ohau. Once again, I absolutely love speaking to these researchers, talking about topics that they're passionate about, that they're interested in, and that they know a hell of a lot more about than I do. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, um, cognitive load theory is something that's come up time and time again on this podcast. It first really started, I think, when Greg Ashman came on the show for the first time, but it's come up in so many conversations since, and、um, in particular conversations with、uh, Dr. Helen Williams and Jules Dolby, which put the other side of the coin on there. Um, teachers and researchers who are perhaps critical or skeptical is perhaps the best phrase of the um increased. I guess emphasis on cognitive load theory and an obsession from from people like me. So I don't know、um, how much more I can add than what was already covered in the conversation with Ohau and that we've、um, done on previous episodes. But I just wanted to make the point that that my view on cognitive load theory these days,、um, I've gone from knowing absolutely zero about it to reading absolutely everything I can about it and getting a little bit obsessed with it. To now, I wouldn't say a middle ground. I'm still, if there was a spectrum between thinking cognitive load theory is a, a bit of a waste of time to thinking it's the best thing in the world, I'm certainly more towards the best thing in the world. But now I, I, I use it more for the practical takeaways. So whenever I think about cognitive load theory and what it means to me in terms of day-to-day -day classroom practice, I think of things like the split attention effect. So it makes me much more aware now of what my slides, my PowerPoint slides, look like when I've got an image on there. Perhaps I'm doing a worked example, and I want to make sure that the labels I attach to that worked example are integrated within the image, and perhaps I number them as well, so I can allow my students to focus their attention on one spot on the board instead of having to split their attention between different sources of information. I'm very much aware of the redundancy effect. I try very hard, although I fail numerous times, not to speak while students are reading text, so not to simply read out the same text that kids are reading. To、uh, to fall victim of the redundancy effect, or to say other things on top whilst kids are reading something and fall victim of the split attention effect. So it's things like that that have really changed my classroom practice. That they're, they're small things, but they mean that they have big implications for my powerpoints, my worksheets, how I talk, how I move around the classroom, my classroom environment, and so on and so forth. On a more general level, my understanding of cognitive load theory is, as I believe, led me to be better at sequencing the type of tasks that I give to my students. 
So when my students are relatively new to a mathematical idea, and again, it's there's, there's negative connotations to the term novice, but I'm going to use it here. When, when my students are novice learners in a very specific mathematical idea, I want to be really selective with the type of activities I give them. And that's where I tend to engage much more in direct explicit instruction, modeling, scaffolding, explaining, supporting my students. And then as they become more expert in that area, that's when the kind of reins come off and I, my students explore and do less structured activities and problem solve and so on. And I know for many people, that's where the kind of sticking point is for cognitive load theory. And I see lots of things on Twitter from, from educational, um, educationalists that I respect greatly who will show examples of um, activities of students being introduced to topics for the first time that have a real high cognitive load that are kind of less structured tasks and so on and so forth. And I'm by no means saying that it's kind of black and white. You need to do explicit instruction at the start and then kind of problem solving towards the end. But for me, it certainly helped me think a lot more about my sequencing. In the past, I was terrible. I just kind of give any old activity or resource to students at any old time without thinking too much about it. But cognitive load theory has really helped me realize that I need to be really aware of, of my students' struggles early on and then really support them and guide them and use my role as the expert in the room. And then as students progress through and they become more knowledgeable themselves, that's when, again, the reins can come off. I can take a bit of a back seat and they can be their creative, problem-solving, conjecturing selves. And that's my ultimate aim. That's my ultimate goal is to have all my students enjoying mathematics and being the creative problem-solvers that they've all got the potential to be. It's just things like cognitive load theory and my, albeit very limited, understanding of, of working memory that's led me to hopefully come up with better sequencing to help my students get to that point. Anyway, as I say, we've, we've spoken plenty about cognitive load theory over the years on this show. And the second thing I wanted to just mention was um, productive failure. Now, this is something that's come up a few times. And it, it's really interesting, this. It's one of those things that I like the sound of it. I like the idea of kind of students struggling, getting to the point where they realize that they've kind of got a bit of, bit of, a, bit of a tool missing in their armory to solve a, solve a problem. So they're, then they're, whether it's more engaged or better equipped or more willing to then listen to the way to do it, to, to be then taught the method or the approach. And I see things like this in, in Andrew Blair's inquiry approach to mathematics, where students investigate and inquire, and then the teacher's there to fill in gaps as and when's needed. I see parallels too in Dan Mayer's headache and aspirin approach that I'm a massive, massive fan of, that there's no point teaching students something until they see the point of it, until they've experienced what life is like without knowing that thing. In other words, until they've experienced the headache, they're not willing to accept the aspirin. I really like all those things, um, but as, as for productive failure, generally as an approach, I remain a little bit skeptical if I'm honest. Now, the reason for my being skeptical is I've no doubt that it works, but I just think it's, it's a bit of an opportunity cost issue. There's a time issue here. I think using this productive failure approach um, takes more time than um, carefully planned out explicit instruction would. So I, I always go back to this, and it, it's a, maybe it's a really daft argument, and it'll be interesting this. When we get to episode 10, which is the climax of this series, and I interview Dave Hewitt, we have um, a discussion about this where when we're faced with this idea of, of with, with a choice between letting students struggle and kind of get there themselves versus us as a teacher telling students things, for me, it comes down to time. So 
how can I justify the 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes that it may take to do one of these less structured activities where students struggle, discuss and so on. And in the end, they get there themselves or the teacher then kind of nudges them along the way and then shows them how to do it and so on. How can I justify doing that over and above me simply saying to students as clearly as I can, this is how you do this using different examples, different representations, then using assessment for learning to try and get a sense of whether they've understood it or not, and then use all the time I've saved to give my students some really careful, well thought out, well sequenced practice. It just seems to me that it's, it's a very tricky, it's a big call to make for me to choose the former there in, in those situations. I won't spoil it, but as I say, me and Dave Hewitt really get into this, and Dave's got some quite strong views on this, and which is no surprise there, and um, I've got some quite strong views on this. So that's where I currently stand on, on productive failure. And for me, it's, it's, it's kind of a time issue. I've, I've no doubt it can lead to some really good learning, I've no doubt that it could lead to some potentially really great lessons, some great experiences for the students, but it's the time it takes. It's the time it takes. And also, I have to say as well, for some students who haven't, I know I sound like a broken record here, for the students who haven't had that experience of, of much success in the past with maths, repeated failure like that can be really frustrating for them. Whereas, again, we've all taught students for whom it's great to let them struggle on something because they're really confident, they're really resilient, and so on. So again, that, that's always an issue for me as well. But it's, it's fascinating literature to read The Productive Failure, and it's interesting to see um, how, how Ohau reconciles that with his interest in cognitive load theory. Which brings me to the final uh, point I just wanted to make. How, how exciting is that, that Anne Watson, Mike Ollerton, and Ohau have, have kind of combined forces to talk about the, the role of cognitive load theory? Now, Anne's been on the show uh, before, and I know from my conversation with Anne on the podcast and also conversations I've had with her at conferences where I've been lucky enough to speak to her, she is, um, I think it would be fair to say, concerned about the overemphasis on cognitive load theory and perhaps the misinterpretation. I think that would be a, a fairer way of, 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 of putting words in, in Anne's mouth. Um, that, that cognitive load theory has, uh, particularly on, uh, on social media, and maybe Ofsted and their views on it and so on and so forth. And again, I've, I've not been lucky enough to speak to Mike Ollerton about his views on it, but I can imagine it would be, be similar. So it's fascinating to see how Ohau works with Anne and Mike, Ohau having worked closely with John Sweller on this and, and clearly being passionate about cognitive load theory, where they get to when it comes to that paper. Now, if all goes according to plan, I believe this will be out kind of mid-December, a little Christmas present for everybody. So if you're listening to the episode um, in December, mid-December, check the podcast show notes page and I'll put a link to the uh, the paper when it comes out. Um, and if you're listening before, then as I say, keep, keep an eye on the podcast show notes page and as soon as that paper goes live i'll tweet about it and i'll put a link in the show notes i'm very much looking forward to do, uh, reading that that could be my christmas treat i think get up christmas day morning crack open a bit of cognitive load theory anyway um i really really enjoyed this episode as i know, as i am enjoying all this series of uh, series of interviews uh, only four more to go but i'll tell you what there's some absolute crackers and as a bit of a sneak preview in episode seven which will be out uh, very very soon I talk about um, re education research in general and in particular biases that I may have. And I notice even in this takeaway and um, biases are coming through. I believe in cognitive load theory, so I'm talking about its positives. I'm skeptical about productive failure, so I look for problems in it. And that's what we're going to be confronting. Teachers kind of into how they can best interpret education research when they've got these biases floating around and when there's all potential problems with research. It's an absolute cracker, so I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs>
Anyway, all that remains for me to do is uh, thank Ohau for giving up his time to speak to me today. Uh, he's an absolutely brilliant guest. Thanks to uh, Colin Foster for helping me put together this uh, series. Thanks for podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout this show. And a big, 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 big thank you to you, my lovely loyal listener. I really hope you're enjoying this uh, this series, this 10-episode uh, mini-series. Let me know on Twitter um, what your favourite episodes are, uh, what you're enjoying about it. Perhaps recommend this show to a friend or a colleague, um, or both. And if you haven't already left a review uh, for the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, I'd really, really appreciate it if you could. Uh, it makes such a big difference to the um, exposure that the podcast gets just with all the algorithms that places like iTunes and Spotify and Podbean have. So if you could leave a review, I'd massively appreciate it. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed that one. I'll be back with another episode soon. You take care. Bye for now. <laughs>